Hello and welcome to the Bradley Lectures Podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Wolford. Things change. Norms shift. And even the language we use alters inevitably with time. This month's episode brings change to the fore as we listen to David Skinner, editor of Humanities Magazine and formerly an assistant managing editor for the Weekly Standard, as he discusses his 2012 book, The Story of Ain't, America, Its Language, and the most controversial dictionary ever published. But change also comes to the Bradley Lectures podcast itself, where we week off our normal schedule, which is partly because of some plans we have in the works here, to make the Bradley Lectures podcast a more engaging experience every episode, including new and exciting guests. If you want to stay up to date on these plans, follow us on Twitter at Bradley Lectures, or subscribe to the Bradley Lectures podcast newsletter, which is linked in the podcast description text below. Now we'll hear from David Skinner about how one of the most divisive books among the literary classes became a dictionary. I'm going to begin with a quotation. The heavens themselves, the planets, and this center. Observe degree, priority, and place. Insisture, course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom in all line of order. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere oppugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility, and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force should be right, or rather right and wrong should lose their names, and so should justice too. Then everything includes itself in power, power into will, will into appetite, and appetite a universal wolf, so doubly seconded with will and power, must make perforce a universal prey, and last, eat up himself. This apocalyptic vision comes from Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida and is quoted at an equal length in the March 10, 1962 issue of The New Yorker in a classic essay by Dwight MacDonald. What so offended MacDonald that the one-time Marxist turned anti-communist turned professional culture scourge found himself imagining mankind reduced to a state of nature and nature herself reduced by a flood such as Noah escaped in his ark? It was a dictionary. Speaking of Noah, the latest descendant of Noah Webster's 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language, which might be described as the founding text of American lexicography. MacDonald cast the speech from Shakespeare as a kind of conservative creed. He sometimes flirted with conservatism. He was something of a fan of William F. Buckley's God and Man at Yale. He sought to replace Irving Kristol as the co-editor of Encounter magazine the liberal anti-communist journal secretly funded by the CIA. But here MacDonald is gesturing toward a conservatism so brittle, so easily disturbed by the least fluctuation in the universe, that it answers with visions of disaster that make global warming look like a day at the beach. And again, it is not a plague of frogs that has brought him to this high pitch of alarm. Rather, it is the recently published Webster's Third New International Dictionary of the English Language, Unabridged better known as Webster's Third and sometimes the Permissive Dictionary. 
MacDonald was not alone. Before he wrote on the matter, many writers for newspapers and magazines had already expressed great consternation at Webster's Third. After receiving a press release from GNC Merriam Company saying that the new dictionary quoted the likes of Mickey Spillane and Betty Grable, and that most shocking of all, it said that ain't was, and I quote, used orally in most parts of the U.S. by cultivated speakers. The Toronto Globe and Mail said, A dictionary's embrace of the word ain't will comfort the ignorant, confer approval upon the mediocre, and subtly imply that proper English is the tool only of the snob. Months after the Bay of Pigs and shortly before the Cuban Missile Crisis, the editorial went on to explain that we live in a world of existential threats, and then discussed whether this dictionary would assist men to truly speak to one another. The answer, it would not. Webster's Third may, however, said the newspaper, prepare us for the future it could help to hasten. In the caves, no doubt, a grunt will do. This, this editorial actually marked the beginning of the argument that culminates in Dwight MacDonald's essay. It can be summarized thusly. Hello, Webster's Third. Goodbye, civilization. This explosive accusation swept in the New York Times, its editorial page, and news pages, and resulted in numerous articles in the paper of record egging on and tracking the controversy, as well as several editorials telling Merriam-Webster, or whoever cared to listen, that American lexicography should go back to 1934 and start over. Professional journals such as the American Bar Associations, local newspapers from Cape Cod to California, popular magazines such as Life, highbrow magazines such as The Atlantic and The American Scholar furrowed their collective middle and high brows, found a sour taste in their mouth, and spat on Webster's Third. Disgusted, William Follett in The Atlantic called it a very great calamity. In the American scholar, Jacques Barzun called it the longest political pamphlet ever put together by a party. The American Heritage Publishing Company had been attempting to buy a majority position in Merriam's stock and take over Merriam-Webster. The controversy became their rallying cry. Before we discuss what this was all about, what the hell happened, I should say a few words about how I came to be so interested in dictionaries. I got interested in lexicography several years ago when, after writing a few articles on usage matters, I was invited to join the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary. It's a vague, minor responsibility, but it made me ask myself how much I really knew about grammar and usage. I had, I had read what I took to be the canonical texts. When I started working at the public interest in 1996, Irving Kristol gave me to study, as he did with all new hires, a copy of The King's English by the Fowler Brothers and a copy of Orwell's classic essay, Politics in the English Language. One summer at the Weekly Standard, the editorial staff convened a reading group to meet and discuss The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. It occurred to me while reading The Fowlers that my Queen's English, I'm, I'm from New York, <laughs> and their, their King's English, though, though related, were, were rather different. And, and Strunk did not, as far as I could tell, know much about the colorful language of journalism, but there was a nice aspirational air to this kind of reading. At their best, these books were examples of distinguished literary minds grappling with problems of grammar and usage. At their worst, they were sometimes superficial homilies on the obvious importance of writing clearly and persuasively, but they seemed inadequate to the tasks of a modern magazine copy editor. 
A few weeks into my job at the Weekly Standard, I was pulled aside and told to be especially wary of slang. Probably this instruction was provoked by some overly youthful or possibly vulgar phrase that made it across my desk and into readers' galleys. I, I don't remember the exact circumstances. But I am a child of my generation. I have a definite weakness for well-used vulgarity. Henry Miller, whose Tropic of Cancer was published the same year as Webster's Third, was one of my first favorite writers. My sense of linguistic propriety, which I do not consider exceptional, has been as much shaped by the Penguin classics as by campus slang and the talk of drinking buddies and even the words of less educated people I know. I was never a big fan of rap, but I was a big fan of 80s post-punk and new wave music and John Hughes movies and advertising copy. I don't go in for a new age spirituality or a corporate motivational talk, but they are in the air I breathe. It seems to me that many of the things we say do not merely illustrate whatever object is at hand, but form responses to a larger set of linguistic circumstances, a sort of common linguistic text, cultural, written, and spoken. The language, as we usually say, it's vast, hard to fathom, but like the ocean, we know it's there. Even words and phrases that we personally disapprove of play a role in what we say and how we say it. I loathe the phrase, thinking outside the box. But in alphabetizing my classical CDs and working through the Bs, my brain will automatically work up a joke about thinking outside the box, B-A-C-H-S. And if someone else is around, I will share my feeble little joke with them, even if I know beforehand that this person will think less of me for it. <laughs> the whole skit is practically fated by the linguistic universe I inhabit. I so object to this oft-repeated and unoriginal call for originality that it becomes inescapable. I will never seriously suggest to anyone that they think outside the box, but in tirelessly avoiding this cliché, I will be, sadly, thinking outside the box. I am like Jack Lemmon in the apartment. He realizes everyone in the advertising business overuses the suffix wise. But when he has to comfort Shirley MacLaine, he says, well, that, that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. In determining what was slang, and possibly verboten for the magazine I worked for, I needed help. Now, it wasn't really my job to be a purist, or I would have been fired, but it is the job of a copy editor to minimize the liberties taken with an author's language, while ensuring that an article fits within the general parameters of what might be called the magazine's incorporated tone. Reading the magazine closely, I developed a sense of its combined authorial tone, but Every article I worked on seemed to bring some new bit of linguistic invention that needed consideration. I could sometimes extrapolate from other words or phrases of whose status I was more certain, but more often than not, this practice suggested to me how different words could be, how different words could be similar in many respects without being truly synonymous or equal. And I could find dictionaries that aggressively marked off huge areas of the language as slang, but almost instantly I could see that these were just too conservative to work for the conservative magazine I worked for. They took an almost punitive attitude toward language, one that reminded me of grade school. While the journalists I worked with and admired did not seem to spend a lot of time trying to remember what their sixth grade teachers had told them about split infinitives and the distinctions between lay and lie. The way the best journalists I knew thought about language had to do with effects. How readers, very few of whom spoke, the King's English, would respond to certain words and phrases and narrative structures. So I needed to know what made a word 
or phrase, slang or inappropriate or impolite. It seemed obvious to me, after I thought about it, that we know words by how we find them, by their associations, the people who use them and the company they keep. I began to use the internet to collect examples in which a given phrase or word that I wanted to know more about had appeared. Easy as it sounds, this project quickly became too laborious to continue. Either I could do the job of a junior staff editor, or I could spend my days compiling my very own Dictionary of English Usage, but I could not do both. What I did not realize at the time was that I was reenacting the history of lexicography. I had been guided by feel, then authority, then rule. When these failed, I came to appreciate the authority of usage itself. And the key to knowing more about usage was evidence, not what someone, Fowler, Strunks, or your sixth grade teacher told you about a given word or phrase, but what actual records of contemporary language suggested. This does not mean that anything current is correct. You still get to choose whether you want to sound educated or illiterate, dialectal or folksy or literary or colloquial or zany. There are countless stylistic variations available to contemporary Americans. But the question of how to do any of these at least begins with a record of evidence. And evidence has long been at the heart of lexicography. Questions as simple as whether a word exists. It's part of speech and its status. Is it respectable? Is it vulgar? Is it stupid? Can't be answered seriously by simple assertion or intuition. Any credible answer begins with these little slips of paper on which someone has written down a word and the context in which they found it. The Oxford English Dictionary, begun in the late 19th century, took as its mission to write biographies of individual words, describing how they change over decades and centuries. It is, of course, the most famous example of a scholarly dictionary, and there seem to be at least two major lessons it promotes within lexicography. That language changes over time, and that it is not the lexicographer's job to substitute his own judgments on words for what the evidence says. One example of a word changing its colors over time is meat. The first definition OED gives is for green meat, that is, grass and vegetables. It should be remembered, of course, that the shift of meat to the other side of your plate, to signify beef and the like, took place over centuries. So if you're, you're headed to Morton's after this, don't worry, there will still be animal flesh on the menu. As to the importance of evidence, this has to be not only a principle of historical investigation, but of scientific investigation. And during the same period when the last volumes of the first edition of the OED were finally being printed, linguists were launching a campaign of persuasion to bring around English teachers and laymen to consider the scientific view of language. One major convert was Charles Carpenter Fries, a scholar from Reading, Pennsylvania, who started his academic career as a teacher of Greek, but as classical languages faded as a requirement for college admission, he switched to studying the history of English, which he encountered at the University of Michigan. For him, the scientific view of language was a new world that changed his whole view of language and grammar. I quote, it seemed to me as revolutionary as the Copernican system in astronomy, the germ theory of disease, or the study of molecular structure in physics. Fries became probably the most influential exponent of linguistics in the United States. I think a roomful of think tankers might appreciate how he operated, setting up projects, arranging funding, cultivating protégés, joining and becoming the president of the National Council of Teachers of English, and all this time publishing work. He was an operator, a scholar an evangelist. And he was at war with classroom grammar. That understanding of language as little more than a set of rules. In his books and those of other scholars of the time, the word correctness 
begins to appear with devil horn quotation marks. One of his infamous statements concerned grammar. There can never be in grammar an error that is both very bad and very common. The more common it is, the nearer it comes to being the best of grammar. Jacques Barzun quoted this very line years later in his book, The House of Intellect, saying that Fries and other linguists had engineered the demise of grammar in the American schools. Another humanist, Henry Warfel, an English professor, wrote a book called Who Killed Grammar? The answer was linguists, Charles Fries in particular. Fries, whatever one thinks of his arguments, certainly had the radical's gift of blunt speech. He once said, The real meaning of any word must finally be, ter- be determined not by its original meaning, its source or etymology, but by the content given the word in actual present usage. Notice the idea here that correctness cannot be wholly separate from usage. It can only derive from usage. From here, it is a very short step intellectually to the thinking that animated Webster's Third and provoked such a controversy. First, I want to mention how Fries' arguments were picked up in educational circles. As a former president of the National Council of Teachers of English, he remained quite involved in the organization, which ended up funding several well-known studies of American English, one of which Fries himself conducted. But it was not his research that landed him square in the middle of the controversy over Webster's Third. It was his propaganda. Research and interpretation invite debate. Propaganda is designed to overcome debate. It is not presented in the spirit of free inquiry, but in the spirit of conviction. Linguists had written serious books explaining their point of view, showing how many classroom rules had been based on false analogies to Latin or crackpot theories about etymology or spelling arguing that language must be studied phonetically and examined as it is actually spoken before we identify the rules which underlie its operations. Another major convert of the era to the scientific view of language was H.L. Mencken, who was death on school marms and grammarians who sought to restrain the racy American vernacular with faux British standards and an unrealistic view of what standard American English actually consisted of. Mencken was especially fierce when it came to the history of usage guidance in America. He singled out the work of Richard Grant White, a man so anglophonic in his preferences that he argued against the Americanism presidential. I asked in my book if perhaps he would have preferred the adjective colonial, which in fact arose in connection with Britain's subservient properties here in North America. Mencken once rewrote the Declaration of Independence in contemporary American vernacular, You know the original, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. Mencken's translation went like this. When things get so balled up that the people of a country have to cut loose from some other country and go it on their own hook without asking no permission from nobody except maybe God Almighty, then they ought to let everybody know why they done it, so that everybody can know they are on the level and not trying to put nothing over nobody. While updating his book in 1936, Mencken removed this satirical but well-observed impression. He said outraged purists had mistaken it for a, pol- for a model of how Americans ought to speak English. Mencken sold many books, but not actually by enumerating the virtues of the scientific view of language. In order for that kind of thinking to enter the classroom, it had to pass through the filter of a curriculum, and the chosen filter was the National Council of Teachers of English, founded in 1908 as a reactionary organization, but by mid-century taking positions on grammar and language more in line with current linguistic thinking and out of step with even actual classroom practice, 
where the old rule on split infinitives and was being taught still along with the art of sentence diagramming. In 1952, NCTE published a volume called English Language Arts, in which it distilled the modern scientific view of language into five basic principles. They are language changes constantly, change is normal, spoken language is the language, correctness rests upon usage, all usage is relative. Now, language change can be controversial, but we all seem to understand that Shakespeare occupies a different linguistic moment than Charles Dickens or Edgar Allan Poe. Like culture, language shifts, meanings drift, fashions develop, the new react to the old, and so on. As Thomas Jefferson once put it, new circumstances call for new words, new phrases, and the transfer of old words to new objects. And the idea that spoken language is the language is best understood as a reaction to the mistaken assumption that most language is simply an inferior form of literature. No one who has studied a foreign language and seen how much can go into ordering breakfast is likely to make this mistake, though we still admire the rare individual who can spontaneously, in their heads, plot a series of sentences into something resembling a good prose paragraph. It's really the last two of these principles that seem at first truly contentious. Correctness rests upon usage, and all usage is relative. Put them together and you get correctness is relative. Some of the reasoning here is unobjectionable. An educated user said in English language arts, will various speech and writing from literary elegance to extreme informality, including slang and dialectal, dialectal expressions. He does so knowingly and with intention. A great deal of rhetorical effect depends on this kind of downshifting from high to low, from the ceremonial to the colloquial, and down to the earthy. And how we speak, of course, changes with context. So if this is relativism, it's pretty mild. But the same passage also describes, I could even say prescribes, what is the responsible, scholarly attitude toward other people's language. The contemporary linguist, it says, does not employ the terms good English and bad English, except in a purely relative sense. There they are again, those scare quotes around good and bad English. It is of a piece with the other things Charles Carpenter Fries and other linguists had said, as they trace the historical origins of standard English, commenting that what we call standard English is not standard because it is any more beautiful or rational, but because it is that variety of English that won out over others in a story of cultural and political evolution, in which the language of the people with power came to be seen as superior, and therefore worth imitating by all the rural strivers and middle-class improvers who wanted to be more like the king. Notice how in this story, all latter-day speakers of standard English instantly become royalist suck-ups, which does seem a little harsh, even for Mencken's whipping boy, Richard Grant White. Now, I am not a linguist, so I use the terms like good and bad without quotation marks, making no apologies for my historically conditioned perspective. My sense of good and bad may be relative, and context may add a whole host of factors to the problem of saying what makes good speech or writing good, but I accept the challenge. It is my language. I will not go putting air quotes all over it to suggest it is not quite my language. A great deal of chance may underlie who and what we are, but I reject the offer to live with a, an as-if constantly hanging over my head. This is much easier for me to say than it was for Philip Gove, editor of Webster's Third. From what I can tell, there were in his mind two basic alternatives. The scientific, non-judgmental view of language, also the view of Fries and the National Council of Teachers of English, 
And then there were the views of his predecessors, who had published Webster's Second in 1934. Webster's Second was more prescriptive than Webster's Third. It was also sometimes much more politic. Under split infinitive, it said, widely objected to, but sometimes desirable to avoid confusion or ambiguity. It's not a complete account of the dispute over split infinitives. It does not courageously take a stand, but it acknowledges that the practice is criticized, which is useful to know, and it discourages taking a hard line. In many other cases, Webster's Second was not so urbane. Its editorial board debated for pro- approximately an hour over whether to allow the exclamation hot dog to enter the dictionary. Alouette were a peaceable but only semi-civilized people. Apache were of warlike disposition and relatively low culture. Much of its material was quickly antiquated. The example phrase under limp referred to a limp cravat. The citations under wrath were several centuries old. And Webster's Second was puritanical. So disreputable was it to be drunk that Webster's Second, published shortly after the end of Prohibition, only gave drank as the past perfect of drink. Dirty words were suppressed. When they weren't, they were treated censoriously. Masturbation was defined, but as onanism, semicolon, self-pollution. Language of doubtful status was labeled with great certainty as vulgar, erroneous, illiterate, jocular, and so on. Colloquial was a common label, not necessarily a punitive one, but most people took it to mean bad, and the pronunciations in Webster's Second were fussy and unrepresentative. The first pronunciation given for aunt was aunt, as in my Aunt Terry, as Thurston Howell III might say it. All this Philip Gove, editor of Webster's Third, opposed. He hated that Webster's Second was so behind the times, not only in its information, but in its usage standards. He hated that it was always shaking a finger at the language. He once started to write an essay about the word T-E-A-T, which Webster's Second pronounced teat. Gove, who worked on his own farm on the weekends, had never heard it pronounced any other way than tit, except by silly people who had never in their lives milked a cow. And he hated how Webster's Second had been presented as the supreme authority. To him, there was no such thing. There was no authority other than the record of usage itself. Language, he told a reporter, is a tool of the people. And a dictionary, he said, should have no traffic with guesswork, prejudice, or bias, or with artificial notions of correctness or superiority. It must be (laughs) descriptive, not prescriptive. This was an important moment. Looking back 40 years later, David Foster Wallace called this the Fort Sumter of the usage wars. And yet, when we look at the TikTok reality of this controversy, it actually got started without much understanding of how linguistics was connected to the policies of Webster's Third. In addition to questions of usage and grammar, while working in political journalism, I got to watch a few controversies play out. The Weekly Standard reported some major cases of plagiarism while I was there. I myself took part in the fight over probate records and other evidence used by Michael Belial in his Bancroft Prize-winning book, Arming America. There was the furious row over George Bush's military record in 2004. In numerous instances, the most controversial of questions could only be answered by reference to actual records. Simple evidence. What do the probate records say? Does the wording in one historian's account match verbatim the wording in another historian's account? Is there physical proof that this document was altered? In a world where so much is determined by argument and where 
perceptions can trump reality, I find it comforting that there are questions that can be answered in so simple a manner. In the case of Webster's Third, the controversy got started on the strength of a press release, misrepresenting the dictionary's handling of ain't. It was Miriam's own press release, and it said that ain't was used orally in most parts of the U.S. by many cultivated speakers, which made ain't sound kind of sophisticated. But this was a simple, out-of-context quotation. The full, awkwardly worded sentence from Webster's Third read, Though disapproved by many, and more common in less educated speech, used orally in most parts of the U.S. by many cultivated speakers, especially in the phrase, ain't I. It's not easy to read, but looked over carefully, it's a lot less permissive than the version in the press release, which also said that ain't was being entered in the dictionary for the first time, which was not true. Ain't had been in dictionaries before this. It had been in Webster's second, whose prescriptive example many critics pined for. Many other stories printed about Webster's third did not survive fact-checking. It was said by Life magazine that Gove's dictionary included the word irregardless without any labels to indicate its dubious status. But this was not true. Irregardless was clearly labeled non-standard. Life magazine also said that Webster's third offered enormity as a synonym for enormousness. Actually, the opposite was true. The writer had misread a cross-reference as a synonym. Philip Gove was uncomfortable with telling readers what to think about many words, but they were not among the examples selected by life. Height, said the loose publication, was included as if it were perfectly respectable, but it was actually labeled chiefly dialectal, which wasn't the same as calling it erroneous, but it also wasn't the same as including it without any label. One of the great misinformed charges made against Webster's Third was that it was responsible for every word it included. But no serious dictionary of the mid-20th century could be anything other than a report or an inventory of the language. That Webster's Third included beatnik did not make it a beatnik dictionary. Curse words could no longer be fully suppressed. And the paternalistic attitude that had once led William Allen Nielsen, editor of Webster's Second, to recommend cutting the dirty parts from Shakespeare no longer made sense. After the Kinsey Report, it was not really possible to define masturbation as onanism. And this was, to my way of thinking, a triumph of principle. A good dictionary is a record of the language, not a bouncer deciding which words should make it beyond the velvet ropes and into the club. Full disclosure, as a youngster, I was always kept outside of clubs, so maybe I'm biased. Wilson Follett got highly exercised in the pages of The Atlantic as he listed all the silly phrases that, to his mind, had wrongly won admission into Webster's Third without a qualifying label. Wise up, ants in one's pants, one for the book, hugeous, hep cat. Though it is hard to imagine the user of an unabridged dictionary missing the informal character of any of these phrases. Follett complained that Webster's Third allowed like to be used as a conjunction, which he then called that darling of advanced libertarians. If my, my subtitle had a subtitle, it would be Adventures in Overwrought Criticism. Then fell to Dwight MacDonald to write the classic takedown on Philip Gove's dictionary, Webster's Third. He made a handful of errors, but also discovered solid evidence of tendentious thinking in Webster's Third, including the fact that it offered 20-some pronunciations for lingerie, and included a separate entry for every number up to 100, all tediously following the same formula. 59 is defined as being one more than 58. <laughs> 60 is being more, one more than 59. MacDonald had interviewed Gove, 
who had estimated that he had saved 80 pages by minimizing the use of commas. Alas, at the cost of creating what most readers agreed was an awful prose style in the dictionary's definitions. Even today, when lexicographers gather and tell war stories, one game is to repeat awkward-sounding definitions from Webster's Third. But from such modest evidence, MacDonald drew incredible conclusions. If lexicographers and teachers, he said, do not stop people from making mistakes like mispronouncing invidious as invidious, the language will be allowed to shift too rapidly, and America will lose her past. At which point, as I said at the beginning, the waters will rise, the rude son will strike his father dead, and justice will mean nothing. A bit much, perhaps. And yet, there was a good bit of underlying truth in the charges against Philip Gove. He was influenced by structural linguistics, as Dwight MacDonald noticed, which is of course not a crime, but it is a big deal for a dictionary editor to become so aggressive a critic of correctness. And in his dictionary's labeling policy, there was a serious bias against the kind of forthright categories that Webster's second had trafficked in, which may be too stiff to capture the utter complexity of many words, but at least did not leave it to the reader to figure out for himself what is vulgar, what is erroneous, and so on which was sometimes the case in Webster's Third. But both of these policies, for both of these policies, there was kind of a technocratic integrity to Gove's thinking. As a composition teacher, as an English professor, and as a reader of linguistics, he had learned to question rule-mongering and the casual pose of supreme authority of dictionaries like Webster's Second. But he had not rounded the next corner and figured out how to continue answering the questions language users bring to their dictionaries. Probably the greatest failing of Webster's Third was to drop wholesale the label colloquial. Gove and many lexicographers had grown impatient with the label because readers had taken it as a warning label, an admonition to avoid this term. But all it usually means is spoken and informal. In the same press release that misquoted the usage note for ain't, Philip Gove said that language had become much less formal since 1934. This was undoubtedly true. It could be seen in the rhetoric of Franklin Delano Roosevelt who on the radio adopted a less formidable persona, along with a more colloquial style. It could be seen in the writings of William Faulkner and Zora Neale Hurston, where popular slang, I'm sorry, where literary style merged with dialectal American speech. And it could be seen in the popular slang of returning soldiers. The language had also expanded. The whole nation went through the Depression and World War, popularizing a great deal of bureaucratic and technical language. And science assumed a new and seemingly irreversible prominence in our culture, contributing to the bloated style that Jacques Barzun criticized and Shrunken White tried to address. When we talk about the demise of liberal arts education and more classic styles of writing, we must also consider the increasing power of science to explain and change reality as we know it. A-bomb was one of the new words entered into the dictionary since 1934 and was mentioned in the same press release that inspired headlines across the country saying, ain't ain't wrong anymore. The language was in flux. It is in flux. It is surprisingly complicated for so familiar a thing, and yet we seem to cut each other very little slack in discussing it. I am a reader of Language Log, the popular group blog for linguists, and I wince every time I see the phrase prescriptivist poppycock, which they use as a departmental name. A reviewer recently rapped me on the knuckles for using a plural verb with none though there is long-standing evidence of none being used with both singular and plural verbs. Also, there is the fact that I did so knowingly. 
but I make a strange spokesman for civility in debate. A hypocritical one, you might say. Not only because of the sharp-elbowed things I've written, but because I take great pleasure in these disputes over language, especially the most heated ones. In the controversy over Webster's Third, there was no shortage of conflict. And my attitude toward controversy is the same as my attitude toward the language as a reader and a listener, which stated colloquially is, let's just sit back and enjoy the fireworks. As always, thanks for joining us. A reminder to watch out for some exciting new updates in the future, either via our Twitter or in our newsletter. And if you'd like to be in touch, please reach out at bradleylecturespod at AEI.org. And of course, I hope you'll join us next time for the Bradley Lectures podcast.